God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform He plants his footsteps in the sea And rides upon the storm Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will Take courage now, you fearful saints The clouds you so much dread are big with and shall break in blessings on your head And I will trust the hands that made the starry heavens And I will trust the wounds of Calvary And I will trust Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Is what?
It's a service here at Pelsall Evangelical Church. It's a glorious summer evening, isn't it? It's great to see the sunshine back again. And uh, it's good to see you here as well. I trust that uh, you'll know God's blessing as we meet together to worship him. Uh, If you're visiting us for the first time this evening, you're especially welcome. And uh, do introduce yourself to us so that we can get to know you. Um, If you're not regular here, you're also very welcome too. We hope that we'll be able to see you another Sunday. There aren't any notices to give because it's summer break, a very reduced program, and so uh, nothing to say on that front at all. We're very conscious, aren't we, that we live in in a deeply troubled world. There's so much that is going on that probably perplexes us, disturbs us, distresses us as we listen to the news, as we perhaps read our newspapers, or what other ever other means there are uh, to keep us informed. But when we are concerned and uh, troubled by these things, it's really important that we turn our minds and hearts back again to who our God is. And Psalm 46, uh, probably a psalm well known to you, Uh, begins in this way, and then there's another verse that I'll read from it. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's bow before the Lord as we come to worship him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you that we know that you are seated upon the throne, that you reign and rule over all things. And in this troubled world where at times to our eyes things can seem out of control, we know that they are subject to your sovereign will and purpose. You know what it is that you are doing and we can trust you. Though everything around us may be shaken and seem to be falling down, we thank you and praise you that we know that nothing shakes you. Nothing thwarts your purposes. You are the great God of sovereign rule and reign. And we thank you, loving Heavenly Father, that you are the God who is with us. Such is your omniscience and your ability to be present everywhere with your people. Each one of us can know that you are with us Whatever circumstances we have to face, whatever situations we may find ourselves in. And we thank you, Father, that you're not just with us as an observer, but that you are with us to protect and keep and to provide for your people. And we thank you that you're the God who faithfully keeps all of the promises that you've given, especially the promise that you've made to never leave us nor to forsake us. And so, Lord, with these encouragements, we come to worship you this evening. Once again, we ask of you that you would, in great mercy, draw near, 
You've promised in your word that those who draw near to you, you will draw near to them. And so, Lord, we would come only trusting in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask that as you draw near to us, it would be in great mercy to richly bless, strengthen, and encourage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn. I I know that it's not the right thing to do, but then I'm afraid I'm not always inclined to do the right thing. But um, we're going to sing a hymn that will be new to many of you, not all of you, um, but certainly, if, even if the words turn out to be familiar, the tune won't be, because it was only written during this period of lockdown. Uh, I was introduced to this hymn in the church that we were in previously in Sheffield, and it became a great favourite of the congregation there. Uh, because of the way in which it speaks about the fact that God is sovereign over all things and that we can trust him and know that all of our times are in his hands. The hymn is Sovereign sovereign Ruler of the Skies, Ever Gracious, Ever Wise. And uh, because it's new to you, um, what we're going to do is sing the first verse and the chorus while you remain seated. You can hear uh, the musician and the uh, singers sing. And then you can stand and we'll give it a go starting from verse 1 again. Does that sound okay? And we'll see how we go. Thank you. skies ever gracious ever wise all my times are in your hand all events at your command times of sickness times of health times of poverty and of wealth Try and give it a go. Yeah, good. We'll start to get the beginning. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in your Times of health, times of poverty and of wealth, times of 
We're going to read from the scriptures now, and it's from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans and chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 15, and Mary's going to come and read this passage of scripture for us. Romans chapter 10, starting to read at verse 5 and down to verse 15, a passage about the importance of the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of of sinners. Thanks, Mary.
Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is God's word. Thanks, Mary. passage that we've just read and the theme that we're going to be thinking about this evening is the fact that our salvation is not in our own hands and our next hymn picks up that theme what who O lord could save themselves we'll stand together to sing Shame was deeper. 
Let's turn to the Lord together in prayer. Shall we? Let's pray. <coughs> Almighty God, we thank you that you are the great Saviour God. The God who reached down to rescue and to save your people out of Egypt. And you redeemed them. And you brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. We thank you too that you are the God who has rescued and redeemed your people in and through your son. That your son came down to break the bonds of bondage that held us. We thank you that we are set free from those bonds of sin and death. And we thank you that that freedom has come through the Lord Jesus taking our place and uh, suffering the penalty that our sin deserved. In shedding his own precious blood, he has dealt with sin and death, and we are set free. And we're on that pathway that leads to eternal glory. We thank you that already we have the gift of the eternal, eternal spirit. We thank you that we have that gift of eternal life. And loving, gracious God, we praise you that these things are all of you. There's nothing in which we can take any credit or any merit. And we thank you, loving Heavenly Father, that you've entrusted to your people, to your church, the great good news of the gospel message 
And we thank you for the way in which that message rings out around the world. That every day is a day of grace. Someone, somewhere, every day comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These days continue because they're days of grace. And they're days that are working towards the sure and certain return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not a day is wasted in your gospel purposes. And so we thank you, loving Heavenly Father, and not just that the gospel is moving forward, uh, but for all those through whom the gospel is being spread. Thank you, Father, that you've included us in that responsibility. But Lord, we know that there is a special responsibility that you have given to those whom you've called to be evangelists, those who are serving as missionaries in other parts of the world. And we thank you for the special gifts that you've given to them uh, and for the way in which in the enabling power of the Spirit, as the word is proclaimed, uh, they are seeing men and women, boys and girls, coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, loving Father, we want to thank you for all the different means that there are that you use to make sure that the gospel goes out, not just through face-to-face encounters, but also through various means of technology, uh, by radio, by the internet. And loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which so often these means reach into countries where otherwise it would be difficult for gospel workers to go. We thank you for this new initiative of Slavic Gospel Association to work in conjunction with Transworld Radio, making available radios and SD cards so that people in remote places, people in places where it would be very hard for others to reach them with the gospel, can hear the good news of the gospel. And we pray, loving Heavenly Father, that you will bless these means and continue to extend your kingdom around the world. Loving Father, we thank you for the way in which, in a country like Uganda, you're blessing the ministry of the word, even in a time of of lockdown in that nation. And though there are uh, many churches which are finding this time really hard, uh, we thank you for those pastors who are using every means possible, having regular small group Bible studies in homes and Uh, in little villages gathering underneath a tree where they can share together the truth of your word and minister to the people. Lord, would you bless every endeavor. Uh, Thank you, Father, for the reports that are received so regularly of those who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in that country. And we pray that not only would you build your church, but through transformed lives, we pray that you would transform that country too. We pray that it might become a real beacon for the gospel in sub-Saharan Africa. Loving Father, we thank you too for those who are serving you in Bible translation and for the way in which the scriptures, particularly with the help of technology, are being translated so much more quickly nowadays into new languages. And Father, we pray for all those who are involved in these works Uh, that they would be faithful to the scriptures, that they would make sure that the translation is one that's reliable and trustworthy. And we pray that your word, in the heart language of the people, will really speak to them as the Holy Spirit gives them insight and understanding, opens the eyes of their minds. 
that they might believe the truth. So Lord, bless and encourage those who we know who are involved in Bible translation. We thank you too, Father, for the work that's uh, really on our doorstep, the work of Birmingham City Mission. And we pray for your blessing to be upon our brothers and sisters serving there, particularly in the open airs that they do on on Tuesdays and Saturdays, uh, through the soup kitchens and through the care centre and other means too. Lord, we thank you for the way in which they're able to reach out. And uh, Lord, we pray that again you'll bless their ministry. You know that at times they experience real opposition, especially from some of the Muslim groups. But Lord, we pray that you'll make them bold and strong, that they'll faithfully proclaim your word. And we thank you for those who they have really good contact with and who are open to hear the truth of your word. Lord, bless every endeavor of the Birmingham City Mission. And Father, we pray for ourselves as a fellowship too. We thank you for the opportunity that we had with the Holiday Bible Club. And we pray that the children will still remember the lessons that they learned, the gospel lessons that uh, were part of their understanding of the wordless book with its different colors representing the, the different key elements of the gospel message. Lord, we pray that the children will come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look to the opportunities of the autumn time and then Passion for Life in 2022, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see the opportunities that we can take and that, uh, Lord, you'll bless the, the gospel ministry of this church as we see those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and added to the kingdom. Lord, may your gracious blessing be upon us. Even though at times it seems in the present climate that gospel work is so hard, yet, Lord, we know that nothing's too hard for you. The gospel really is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so, Lord, in faith we pray that you would bless every opportunity that we take and that, Lord, you would be pleased to rescue and to save. And so, loving, gracious God, we commit this to you because we recognize the very real spiritual need of our nation. Uh, We're greatly distressed, not just by the troubles that we see in other parts of the world, uh, but also the spiritual decline in our own nation. How frequently the name of the Lord is taken in vain. How often we uh, see uh, evidences of a total breakdown in the moral fabric of of the nation. Lord, we cry to you and plead with you that you would have mercy upon us and that you might yet be pleased to come and work in power and might by the Spirit to demonstrate that uh, you are a God who is merciful and a God who saves. So gracious God, have mercy upon our nation, we pray. And Lord, as we turn to the Scriptures, as we come to your word once again this evening, we pray that you would open your word to us and bless not only the reading of your word, but the hearing of the preaching of your word too. May they be enabled by God the Holy Spirit to bless us all and grant to us that consciousness that our God has been dealing with us and speaking to us. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing once again and uh, 
it's a hymn that, uh, again, is going to be new to you, but you'll know the tune this time. I promise you that. It's a, it's a well-known tune. I've chosen this hymn because it picks up on the key things in the story of the Lord Jesus, which are at the heart of the gospel. And the hymn begins, See, he dies. But as I say, you will know the tune. Glorious fountain head, as 
if you'd uh, turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Uh, For those of you who are here this morning, um, you'll know that we looked at the centurion in Capernaum from Luke chapter 10. Um, Sorry, Luke chapter 7. Uh, And this evening we're going to look at another centurion. Um, uh, And this centurion is mentioned in Acts chapter 10 and We're going to read the first eight verses and then pick up the reading again at verse 23. If you're using a copy of the the church Bible, uh, you'll find the reading is on page 1103. And if you're using one of the large print Bibles, it's on page 1707. Acts chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Then we jump to verse 23. The men have gone to Joppa. They've come to the house where Peter is staying. And in verse 23 we read, Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And uh, the bit that we've missed out in Acts chapter 10 is the amazing experience that Peter had of God giving him a vision in which he was made aware that he was not to call anything impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, 
at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It's a thrilling bit of narrative, isn't it? And uh, we find this in, in Acts, which is uh, Luke's second book, written for the benefit of this man called Theophilus, that he might truly understand the truth about the Lord Jesus and how the purposes of God were being worked out in his days. And uh, the verse that I've, I've chosen as a sort of a, a, a focus for our thoughts this evening from this passage is verse 43, or at least these words in verse 43. The words are, everyone who believes in him, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And our theme this evening is to consider the fact that conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit through the truth of the gospel. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit through the truth of the gospel. The centurion that we thought about this morning, and this centurion that we're going to consider this evening, 
in some ways, you would think would be the last men to take an interest in Christianity. You wouldn't expect it. You wouldn't expect it in that day. You wouldn't expect it today. If you remember this morning as we spoke about the centurion Capernaum, and I'm sure it's true of this centurion in Caesarea as well, this centurion called Cornelius, is that they were men of impressive physical presence and maturity. They were military men of experience, strength and courage and skill. They were inspiring leaders, disciplined and disciplinarians. Men who commanded the respect, loyalty and obedience of the soldiers under their command. As we said this morning, they were men's men. They were the kind of people that uh, men might look up to. And it's helpful for us to see, isn't it, when there are many who would say, oh, of course, basically the church is full of women and it's only for women, that God does indeed have a very special interest in men and that there are plenty of men in our churches. And it's encouraging, isn't it, to see the way in which in churches where there's the faithful proclamation of the gospel, the men are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The men are an important part of the work of the local church. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for men and women, for Jews and for Gentiles. And as we saw this morning, the Capernaum centurion was a very devout man, and he was also a man who exercised great faith. That great faith was faith that was focused in the greatness of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It wasn't so much that the centurion had worked up a special quality of faith for himself. It was more that he had seen the very clear evidences of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity, that he trusted that the Lord Jesus could do exactly what he said he could do. And so with great faith, he believed that the Lord Jesus could heal his servant, even from a distance. And the Bible tells us that's exactly what happened. And so this evening, we're going to see what lessons we can learn from this centurion in, in Caesarea. Uh, we've mentioned already that his name is Cornelius. What do we know about him from the scripture record? How is he remembered? Well, we're told that he was in the Italian regiment. And that probably means that he was from the southern province of Italy, the area on the southern end of Italy as we know it today. Clearly he was a Gentile. He was far from home. He'd probably been billeted in Caesarea for quite some time. And so he had his family with him and was settled down in this important uh, provincial capital and seaport. It's clearly the case that um, he anticipated that he would probably be there for quite some while longer. It was part of his responsible to, responsibility to be part of the garrison that protected this important port. But there was something else that stands out about this um, particular centurion. I want to take you just through three things briefly. And the first of them is this, that Cornelius 
was evidently a God-fearing man. We mentioned this morning that that's a way we could describe the centurion in Capernaum. And we find that Luke uses this phrase a number of times in the book of Acts about the people from the Gentile community who were attending the synagogue. And although they had to sit in a special section, they, they couldn't really mix with the Jews in the synagogues, yet nevertheless they attended because they had gained a very serious interest in the one God of the Jews and in the moral framework by which the Jews lived, which they knew was in the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures of the Jews. And it would seem that Cornelius came into this same category. We don't know whether he attended the local synagogue. We're not told that. But he was clearly somebody who had seriously questioned the religious practices and beliefs of the people that he'd been brought up with. And he'd also become acquainted with, sympathetic towards, committed to the beliefs of the Jews that he knew. And this, no doubt, was costly for him. Because he was going to stand out from others. He was going to be different to the crowd. The Bible tells us in verse 2 of this chapter that Cornelius was a devout man fearing God. And that not only him, but also his family, and even one of his soldiers who was an attendant, was also a devout man, sincerely religious, a man who wanted to please God. In verse 2, we're also told that he was a man who gave generously to those in need. And verse 2 also tells us that he was a man who prayed regularly. We're told that he was praying at three in the afternoon, one of the set times for prayer amongst the Jews. And if he prayed at three, he probably prayed at the other set times too. So he was a man who was regularly committed to prayer. A man whose spiritual attitude and behavior was observed and commended by God. Do you see what it says in verse, uh, verse 4? The angel, the angel who came to see him answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. God noticed this man. He noticed not just the outward actions of this man, but what was coming from the heart. And so he was also a greatly privileged man. Verse 3 tells us that an angel of the Lord came to meet with him. I don't know how many of you have had any encounters with angels. I, I doubt whether you've had an encounter quite like this that Cornelius had. But God sent this angel to him. And God sent the angel because he got a very specific thing that he wanted Cornelius to do. Because there was something that Cornelius really needed to know. And we're told that when Cornelius received this visitation from the angel, he was humbled and he was also shocked by it, but he immediately responded to what he was told to do. And it reminded me of some of the testimonies that you can read about those, particularly from an Islamic background, and especially during Ramadan. 
I don't know whether you have had any of the prayer guides for praying for Muslims through Ramadan, but they will often encourage you to pray for them because repeatedly what happens is that there are sincere Muslims who genuinely want to have an encounter with God who actually know an angel come to them. Sometimes they see a vision of the Lord and it begins the spiritual work in them that ultimately brings them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the only thing that happens to them. It's part of the way in which God deals with them. And so we can see here in an experience from the first century something that helps us to see that those kinds of experiences that are found even today are because God sees into the heart. He knows those who are genuinely wanting to know him and to come into a right relationship with him. But God describes the devotion of this man as a memorial offering. A memorial offering was something that was added to the main burnt offering. It was usually flour or crushed wheat that was mixed with incense and it was added to the burnt offering so that as the incense went up, it was a demonstration of the heartfelt devotion of the offerer. It was an extra to the sacrifice that was a burnt offering. And that's quite a thing, isn't it? That God says that he sees the prayerful devotion of this man as being like this memorial offering that is added to the sacrifice. It tells us something about what was deep in the heart of this centurion. In a sense, we can see the fulfillment of those words that we have in Jeremiah chapter 29, where it says this, The Lord says, Call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what Cornelius was doing. As yet he didn't have a complete knowledge of God. He wasn't yet in a right relationship with God. And yet he was already demonstrating a devotion of heart, a seeking after God that God honoured by giving him the opportunity to have an angel visitation and ultimately a visit by the Apostle Peter. And that should encourage each of us. If we're genuinely serious about our relationship with God, if we genuinely seek after him, he will be found by us. He doesn't stand afar off to be awkward or difficult, but he's one who draws near to his people. As, as I mentioned in prayer early along, the scripture says that when we come near to him, he will draw near to us. We can know that God hears our cry and answers our prayers and will come and minister to us. And I would suggest to you that this stage in the story, at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, there is something of a changed nature in Cornelius. He was not like most centurions, but he was not yet a converted man. There was yet something that had to happen in this man's life that was essential for him to come into a complete and full knowledge of and relationship with God. 
He still needed to enter into the kingdom, though at this stage he was near to it. Do you remember what Jesus said to the teacher of the law who was able to say that he knew that the law of God was summed up in the two great commandments? Jesus said to him, Mark 12, you are not far from the kingdom. But he wasn't in it. He was near to it, but he wasn't yet in it. Some of you might know the story of John Wesley. John Wesley was a very devout and religious young man. And when he was at university, he was so serious about his Christian faith as he understood it that he developed a club called, by those who mocked him, the Holy Club, with his brother and some of his friends. And they used to meet together regularly to read the scriptures and to study the Bible and to pray. They even went prison visiting together. They helped the poor and they started a small school for the children of poor families. In 1735, when John was 32, he went to America with his brother to be a chaplain in the colonies. But he had a desperate time there for a number of years. He was not accepted, he wasn't appreciated, and in despair he came back to this country in 1738. On the 24th of May, 1738, in his diary, he writes this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. At that moment, John Wesley was a converted man. But previously, even though he thought he was a good Christian, he was yet still outside of the kingdom. A devout and religious man who had not yet come truly to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. John and Cornelius are similar men at this point in the story. God-fearers, devout religious men, but not yet right with God. And that's why God sent the angel. What did the angel say to Cornelius? Peter has got to come. Peter's got to share something with you. Send for Peter. Why did Peter have to come? Well, because Peter had got to share with him the gospel. That's what he needed to hear. And that's why it's important that we hear the gospel, that we're regularly reminded of the gospel, because the gospel is central, not just to our salvation, but our ongoing relationship with the Lord, week by week. And it's why as a church, we have to be committed to making known the gospel, because this is the way God saves. So here's the second point. Cornelius was a man who needed to hear the gospel. It wasn't enough for Cornelius to be a good man, a devout man. However respected he was in his community, he needed to hear the gospel. And God arranged by a series of remarkable events to prepare Peter to come 
and to preach the gospel to him. And I want you to notice there are just three key elements in Peter's sermon. The first of them in verse 38 is he speaks about the life of Jesus. In verse 38 of, of, of chapter 10. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. That's an essential part of the gospel message. That we tell people the truth about Jesus, his perfect life and his ministry of word and of sign. And then the second part of of Peter's sermon, we can see in verses 39 to 41, where he speaks about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is also crucial right at the heart of the gospel. Peter says that he's witnesses of everything that Jesus did, and then he says they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. The veracity of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why it was that the Lord Jesus had to die. And then the third part of the message is in verses 42 and 43. Where he speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming again. He's coming in judgment. And that in Jesus we can know the forgiveness of sins. So that we're ready for that day. So that we don't have to fear condemnation on the day when Jesus comes as judge. Now that's the heart of Peter's sermon. I want you to notice he had a wonderful congregation. In verse 33, we're told that they were all eager and expectant and you know, sat on the edge of their seats and desperate to hear what he had to say. Just like you wonderful people. Secondly, he assumed the historical veracity of the truth about Jesus. He didn't have to give some apologetic account. It's not questioned by any of the people who heard him. In fact, in verses 36 and 37, do you know how both, do you notice how both verses say, you know? Although he tells them these things, he's able to say, but I know you already know all about this. It was common knowledge. There were those who knew about what it was that Jesus had said and had done about his death and resurrection. And the third thing to notice, that God was pleased to use the preaching of Peter, someone who had initially been so reluctant to go. Isn't that encouraging? Too often, we feel anxious about going. We don't feel prepared. We don't feel ready. We're not sure we're the right person to do it. Well, Peter was just like that. And God had to show him that it was essential that he took the gospel to Cornelius. But I notice something else in verse 43. The climax of of Peter's sermon seems to be the words of our text in verse 43. And at that very point, the Spirit of God convinced Cornelius, and not just him, but his family and his friends and probably these other devout soldiers who were around him, about the truth about Jesus. And we're told they believed. 
Verse 44, they savingly believed. We're told that while Peter was still speaking, they believed. He didn't have to do an altar call. He didn't have to say, you know, would anybody like to be saved? No. As he was speaking and declaring the truth of the gospel, the power of the Spirit fell upon those who were gathered. It's a bit like the situation in Thessalonica where Paul says, the gospel came with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, and they were saved. And what followed in verse 45 was a Gentile Pentecost. A sovereign work of the Spirit, just like Acts 2. And the reason that happened was not only to demonstrate to this Gentile and his family and those who are part of his household that they were included in the household of God, but it was actually to convince the reluctant Jews that they were accepted into the family of God as well. We know this from what happens in chapter 11 when there were those who were very skeptical about what God was doing. I have a friend who regularly goes to the Ukraine. And amazingly, in the Ukraine, there are evangelical believers and there are also Messianic Jews, congregations of Messianic Jews in Ukraine, dotted all over the country. And yet the evangelical Christians in the churches and the Messianic Jews who meet together have had very little interaction with each other. And what he does is he arranges meetings for them to come together so that they can see that they are one in Christ. It's a wonderful thing to know that there are Messianic Jews in the Ukraine. But it's even more wonderful to know that God is drawing together Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians into churches where they are one new man in Christ. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 10. And that's what God is doing today, where he is saving his ancient people. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We're one people of God. And then lastly, and I must hasten on. Thirdly, we see Cornelius, a converted man. No longer just a good man, no longer just a religious man, no longer just not someone who was doing, as it were, outwardly those things which suggested a, a man who knew God. He was now a new man in Christ. We would say that he's been regenerated by the Spirit of God. He's been born again. He's a new creation. He's truly reconciled to God. He's a full member of the household of God. He belongs to the body of Christ. He's a member of the true temple of God. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he'd received the promised Holy Spirit. And he did so in a way that was identical to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so in verse 46, we're told, he became a rejoicing man, praising God. And that was exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? We're told that in their different languages, they spoke the praiseworthy deeds of God. Cornelius and those with him do the same thing. And Peter was clearly convinced that not only was this man regenerate, he was also truly repentant with true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why in verse 47, 
he says that he should be baptized. He and all his family and his friends too. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? A wonderful story of the way God worked so graciously and powerfully in the life of Cornelius and his family. And uh, I'm going to give this glass of water to Margaret. Because her need is greater than mine. Okay. So what's the particular challenge of this story for us? Well, the first challenge is this. Where do you stand in your relationship with God? Are you devout and religious and outwardly people will say, well, I'm pretty sure that person must be a Christian. Or do you truly know that you've been born again of the Spirit of God? That you've been brought into a right relationship with God? That you're truly part of the family of God? You're an adopted son or daughter of the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ is your saviour. You see, the scripture says we must be born again. There's no other way, there's no other route into a right relationship with God. You can give as much alms as Cornelius did before he was saved. You can pray as often as he did. Uh, You can be very devout and very religious. But until you're truly born again, then you're still outside of the kingdom of God. And if you're born again, then I trust that you also have been baptised. Baptism is not essential to salvation. The thief on the cross, he was never baptised. He didn't have chance. And there are those who down through the ages, because of their circumstances, have not had the chance to be baptised. But if we are in that position where we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus and we've truly trusted in him and we know we've been born again of the Spirit of God, then it's actually disobedient not to be baptized, to demonstrate that we have repented toward God and we have faith in him. The scripture says that we're born again Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Or as Paul says here in Romans 10, that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Or as James says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God always works through his word, through the gospel, by his spirit, to bring us to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, as the Lord's people, we should, in every way that we possibly can, support and promote the preaching of the word, not only in our own fellowship, but also around the world. But I wonder, maybe there's somebody here this evening who has not yet come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you're seriously interested. 
Would you like to find out more about what it means to be a Christian? I wonder if you'd be willing to make time to look at a, something like Christianity Explored or do a, a one-to-one read with somebody through a gospel. If that's you, then do speak to me or one of the elders here in the church at the end of the service. If God is speaking to you, then take the opportunity that this evening gives. Let's just take a moment to pray, shall we? Let's pray. Loving and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel. And we thank you for the way in which by the power of the Spirit, through the truth of your word, you bring those who are far from you, those whose hearts and minds are yet still blind to the truth, into the kingdom and into a right relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for the powerful work by which you regenerate those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And we thank you for the way in which we see this in the experience of Cornelius. We see it in the experience of a man like John Wesley, who went on to be so powerfully used of you in gospel work. And we thank you, Father, for each person here who can say that their testimony has got those similar dimensions to it. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live always in the confidence of what you have done by grace through faith in our lives. But Lord, if there's anyone who has not yet truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and sincerely and earnestly is seeking after the truth, then Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and grant them not only to hear about the gospel, but to truly hear the gospel that they might be drawn to true faith in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn to close that reminds us that there's nothing that we can do to bring about our salvation. It is a sovereign work of God. And the hymn is not what these hands have done. And we'll stand together to sing.
God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through the gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings you have received, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. To the praise and glory of the Saviour. Amen.